0: welcome to episode 92 of fbi retired case file review with jerry williams i'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime fbi cases today we get to speak to retired agent Stuart fillmore who served with the fbi for 29 years he began his bureau career as a support employee and after three years received an appointment to the special agent position He was assigned to the Dallas, Little Rock, Chicago, and Tyler, Texas offices. A career street agent, Stuart Fillmore worked most of the criminal investigations under the jurisdiction of the FBI. However, his primary specialty was investigating public corruption. In this episode, Stuart Fillmore reviews a case initiated based on allegations that minority motorists were being illegally stopped on an isolated stretch of highway in rural East Texas. The case eventually was redirected to determine how and by whom drugs and firearms confiscated from motorists had gone missing from the local police evidence room. Stuart Fillmore wrote a book about the case, Tenaha, Corruption and Cover-Up, in small town, Texas. The true crime story provides an inside look at how an actual FBI public corruption investigation is worked. Since retiring from the FBI, Fillmore currently operates his own private investigation company. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. There are so many twists and turns that you are going to say to yourself, this has got to be fiction especially when it comes to the surprised and unexpected ending. Before we get to the case, I just have a few things. First of all, for those of you who listen to the podcast on iTunes, a podcast app that feeds directly from Apple Podcast, I want to let you know that I've been working on the audio files to make them compliant with the new iOS 11 tags and metadata requirements. In doing so, I discovered that there were about eight of my earlier audio files, because of some error, weren't even listed in iTunes and the other apps. So I do want to let you know about that because I don't want you to have missed out on those great episodes, especially if you've come to the podcast recently and have been binging from the beginning. So I want you to look out for episodes 5, 6, 10, 11, 12, 16, 18, and 19. I don't know when they disappeared, but they're back and they're great and I do they feature drugs and the Sicilian mob, espionage, extraterritorial jurisdiction, a serial killer in Ghana, the Japanese legat, the Jihad Jane terrorism case, the Chasing Phil bogus security case, and a case involving the murder of three little girls in Dallas. So again, episodes five, six, 10, 11, 12, 16, 18, and 19, Should have shown up in your new episode feed, but if they haven't and you've missed them, I hope you go back and listen to them. The only other two things I have to remind you is that I am running a special November giveaway, and all you need to do to enter that giveaway is to be a member of my reader team. If you're not yet a member of my reader team, you can join by going to my website, jerrywilliams.com, and sign up when you see the pop-up, or my Facebook page, Jerry Williams Author, and signing up to be a member of my reader team there. What I'm giving away is a special limited edition FBI collectible ornament that you can't get anywhere else except for the FBI Recreation Association store down in Washington DC and from me so three lucky winners will be selected on December the 1st after you've signed up to be a member of my reader team I will send you my November reader team email about the FBI and books, TV and movies, and that will explain everything you need to know in order to enter to win that limited edition FBI ornament. This month's email is all about the FBI experience, which is the new FBI tour at FBI headquarters. You'll learn about what you need to do in order to visit the FBI experience and that FBI Recreation Association store. I also want to ask for your help. Unfortunately, my special guest that I was hoping to have for the 100th anniversary has declined. I've wiped away the tears, very disappointed, but we're going to still have a great 100th episode talking once again about the FBI and books, TV and movies and looking at cliches, and misconceptions. So we did 10 for the 50th episode. We'll do 10 more for the 100th episode. I've started collecting some. If you have some things that you've seen on different shows or in different books about the FBI, and you really questioned about whether or not they're accurate, please let me know. Email me at jerrywilliamsauthor at gmail.com. Tweet me at jerrywilliams1, or message me on my author Facebook page, Jerry Williams, author. Please stick around after the interview. I have a great crime fiction recommendation. But for now, here's the show.
1: I am excited to introduce my guest for today, Stuart Fillmore. Hi, Stuart. How are you? I'm great, Jerry. How are you? I'm fantastic. I am so glad that I was able to connect with you because I saw an article about a book that you wrote, a true crime uh, book that you wrote. And as I was reading over, you know, what it was all about, I thought, oh, I got to get this guy on <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> That's so, great. Yeah, and so the name of your book is Tenaha: Corruption and Cover-Up in a Small Texas Town. Give us just a really quick tease about what the case is about. And then we'll go right in and uh, you can tell us all the twists and turns and details.
2: It started with uh, a large national media uh, attention that was brought about that the local police in this small Texas town were stopping minority uh, motorists driving through there and using the power of uh, their law enforcement authority were extorting money and possessions and cars. And there was a a big splash in the media about it, and that's how it started. But as we worked the case, we found that there was a lot more to it, and and the rest of the story was not told.
1: Well, that sounds pretty serious on itself. If you are you know an African American or Hispanic you know, individual driving through this area and you get pulled over, that sounds for, for no reason. That sounds very frightening. But you're telling me that that wasn't even the case? I mean, that sounds like something, a civil rights violation or whatever, that the FBI could investigate.
2: Well, the investigation started as a civil rights case, and you're absolutely right. Those initial allegations were scary, and, they were, and it was certainly appropriate for the FBI to be involved in that investigation.
1: But you're saying nothing really happened with that?
2: Well, the case was worked very thoroughly in a, over a course of about 18 months the civil rights investigation. But at the end of that investigation, and we looked at bank records, we looked at videos of the car stops, we interviewed the the alleged victims, uh, numerous witnesses involved. Uh, It just wasn't there. The the, the stops we found were appropriate. Uh, They had been documented. And what really kind of became apparent was that or they gave it such a bad appearance was that the D.A. in that small Texas county had not prosecuted any of these cases. So there were hundreds of car stops, and both drugs and money were seized, but the D.A. had not prosecuted anyone uh, for either the drug possession or uh, uh, having large amounts of cash that they couldn't account for. So it just had the appearance that they were just simply just stealing people's money and that there was no judicial process to back it up. And so it gave a really horrible appearance. But at the end of that investigation, there were the the, the stops and the videos that we reviewed appeared to be appropriate and legitimate. And in tracing all the money, there really wasn't – there weren't any inappropriate payments. In other words, no one had personally profited, Uh, none of the police involved, the D.A., and so forth. There were a few questionable transactions uh, involving the money, um, but uh it, it would not have fallen as as it had gone in someone's pocket personally. So really that case that was pretty much how that the civil rights portion of that case uh ended. So toward the end of that case as as we were really kind of just wrapping it, wrapping it up, I received a letter from the, the city marshal of Tennahoe, Texas which is a small town in deep east Texas of about 1,000 people. And it sits strategically on Highway 59, which happens to be one of the major drug trafficking corridors out of Houston to, that leads to points north. And it's been known for years that Highway 59 is, is, a, is a drug highway. And so that's what, why Tannehill was strategically placed and the, the local police there had started doing drug interdiction. And they had hired, the, the city had hired a retired DPS trooper named Barry Washington. And Barry Washington was legendary at, uh, narcotics interdiction, which is a law enforcement technique that when, when people are stopped, uh, motorists are stopped, that the The officer will look for indicators of drug trafficking, and Barry Washington was expert at it uh, he during the, during his career in the highway patrol uh, he had uh, he had uh, seized i i, I can 't even tell you how many how many thousands of pounds of of drugs uh, that he had seized over the years so he was very good at this technique of of interdiction and so it began uh, once he was hired in tenahae it began and um, he had been there about a year when allegations started surfacing that, that motorists were just being stopped, primarily minorities, and that uh, they were having their, their money seized with a threat of either going to jail, and in some cases people's children, they, they were threatened that their children were going to be taken away from them. But through the course of this investigation, we really found that that the that. Although the allegations sounded egregious, that they really didn't have the the merit and it was just something that that ultimately we just couldn't find the evidence for. So uh, it's important to realize that, you know, sometimes uh, crimes do occur, but if we don't have the evidence for it and we can't prove it in court, then we don't, you know, pursue these to, to try to continue to put someone in jail if we can't prove it. So um I'm not saying that that that's something that maybe some uh violations didn't occur but I'm saying we never found it in a very thorough investigation anything that we could have proven beyond a reasonable doubt in a criminal court. So as that so, case was ramping up, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: How large is Tenaha? I mean, how many people live in this area? I just want to get a picture of, you know, the the city or the town mm-hmm. uh that uh, you know surrounds this highway.
2: 59. Yeah. Okay. So Tinahaw is like, it's about a a thousand people in in a small town. Uh, the, the the downtown portion of Tinahaw, which runs parallel to Highway 59, um, has definitely seen its better days. I think most of the buildings are probably in the neighborhood of a hundred years old or older. Uh, very few businesses are still there. They have a brand new uh, football stadium though, that's, uh, very nice. Um, and, you know, it's just it's a quiet country town for folks that aren't familiar with the with the, the geography of Texas. East Texas is very heavily wooded with rolling sand hills. And it, it's really a pretty uh, uh, place um, in, in that it's wooded and rural and, and just a quiet country town.
1: So you have a small town like this. Uh-huh. Why are they invested in these Drug interdictions. I mean, pulling people off the highway. What what are they going to get out of it that they can't leave uh, to a larger city or mm-hmm. the uh, Texas Rangers to do? Um, mm-hmm. Why wh- why would they want to spend so much of their manpower, resources, and energy pulling over drivers?
2: And that gets into, I guess, a, a you know, a, a larger debate or a, a separate debate about um how small towns uh earn their revenue okay um so Barry Washington was hired to just conduct interdiction in, in the town and once he started once these seizures started the the town coffers uh really started filling up okay the the, the seized money really um went to uh uh the different purposes of, okay so uh, let me explain that so in Texas when uh when money is seized in a criminal case it can be used that money can be used for law, law enforcement purposes only okay that is new cars new equipment and so forth so with that seizure money available to the city the city didn't have to to come up with its own funding for law enforcement gear and that also the DA's office could use that money as well um, as long as it was for strictly for a law enforcement purpose. And that was one thing that got into a little uh, of a sticky issue because the DA did use some of the seizure money uh, for electioneering. So it was questionable whether that would fall under a law enforcement purpose or not, but that really didn't rise to a, a criminal violation at the end of that case as, as we looked at it so that that was the, the the primary purpose was just to add additional funding to the city um and uh, people can argue whether that's that's right or wrong, but that was the that was the, the purpose of it
1: all right I just had those initial questions, but no yeah.
2: no I, I no I want you to get the full picture because it's really a fascinating story
1: so you're at the point now where you've looked into the civil rights investigation and you're <laughs> not finding the evidence that you need. To prove that there was actual criminal activity. So, is that it? It's over. That's yes. correct.
2: That's correct. Well, you, you w- one would think so. I mean, at this point, the, that's I was pretty much of the mindset that this is over, and was just doing some some follow up work to get ready to you know to close this out. Um, when I received a letter from the city marshal of Tenaha, whose name was Fred Walker, and Fred. I had uh, interviewed him uh, a couple times officially during the civil rights investigation um and had spoken to him uh in- informally uh, a handful of, of other times so I-, I wasn't necessarily surprised to see anything from Fred but so I was I just assumed it was a routine letter so when I opened it within I don't know a couple of sentences I realized what I was reading was an extortion letter it was a two page letter and it was, there were actually two copies of this same letter. One was addressed to Fred Walker, the city marshal, and one was addressed to an individual named Rod McClure, who I was not familiar with. So as I read the letter, it was from a person that called themselves Jack Frost. Jack Frost claimed to be a DEA agent and that he, in the course of his job as a DEA agent, had become aware that Fred Walker and Rod McClure had been stealing uh, narcotics evidence from the, the city marshal's evidence room, selling it and making a huge profit. Well, all Jack Frost wanted in return for his silence or inaction uh, was $71,000 in cash from each from Walker and McClure. He provided an email address and he provided a, uh, a post office box in Round Rock, Texas, which is down near Austin, Texas. And for folks not familiar with Texas, that's about, uh, that's about four hours south of Dallas. So Frost gave a, a short deadline for when he wanted this cash, uh, in the, uh, in this mailbox. And he, on one of the letters, he even provided a key to the mailbox, um, and take the, an original key on it. And then he wanted to be notified at the email address that he provided when the money was in there. Otherwise, I think the quote was, he was going to burn the both of you down. Um, so uh, by the time I got this letter, Jack Frost's deadline had already passed. Um, I don't remember the, uh, the top of my head the exact uh, deadline, but it was, it was a very short deadline. By the time I got it, it had passed. So I immediately called Fred Walker. And Fred, uh, and I questioned him, what, what is this about? What, what, you know, tell me what, what you know. And he, I don't, he said, I don't know anything. I said, who is Rod McClure? He said, well, he's a guy just here in town. He owns a computer shop. Um, but, uh, I, you know, he said, I have no idea why he would get, get this letter. I he said, I don't know what this is about. So at this point, I had no reason to, to, Distrust Fred Walker or to not believe anything that he said. So I, I took this as real and set about, uh, trying to identify, uh, this, uh, Jack Frost character. And I, I, you know, I gave Fred Walker a warning that, you know, hey, you, you might want to be careful. I don't, I don't, we don't know who this is or what this is. So, and, and he agreed. So, so I, if
1: I can interrupt just for a second. Sure. So I take it that Fred Walker, sent you the letter because he was fearful. He feared for, he, he wanted help from the FBI because he's claiming he doesn't know what the letter was about, but he certainly knew that a threat, you know, that I'm going to burn you guys down was, was pretty threatening to his life.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: And okay. another One other question. I'm sorry. I... You've
2: actually <laughs> brought up a very good point and that, that well, will actually make the story more uh, compelling in the end.
1: Okay, well, good. Um, the other <laughs> thing I wanted to be clear about is the city marshal, that's not a term on the east coast that I am, um, you know, aware of. Mm-hmm. Is that like the sheriff's office or a police department?
2: It, it, it's essentially a local police department. So you have to understand this is a city of a thousand people. At the time, there was, there were two officers in the, in the city marshal's office. There was Fred Walker, who was the city marshal and Barry Washington, the deputy city marshal. Now an interesting thing about that was, Barry Washington, although he was the deputy city marshal, had been hired directly by the mayor of the town and not by Fred Walker. And Barry Washington reported to the mayor and not Fred Walker. Okay? Mm. So it's an interesting, uh, dynamic. Uh, yeah, yeah, dynamic and chain <laughs> of command there. Okay? Uh, so, and, and another, another little thing is that, uh, Barry Washington was actually making more money than Fred Walker. So, uh, uh it was a, there was an interesting dynamic between those two. Um, and so, uh, yes, yeah, so, so town marshal or city marshal, that's just a, that's just a unique term. And, and, and quite honestly, it's a, it's, it's, it's a very uncommon, uh, usage even in Texas. So, um, I don't know how necessarily Kennehall, uh, decided on having a city marshal's office versus, versus having a police department, but nonetheless, that's what that was. So, initially, the, the first thing to do is try to identify who Jack Frost is, where this letter came from, and there were several ways to do that, uh, through, he had left an email address, he had rented a, uh, post office box, uh, down in, in Round Rock, Texas, and so it was actually, pretty simple to, uh, to identify uh, who it was, and his name was Terrence Ford, and that's actually not his real name, because in the, in the book that I wrote, I, I uh, changed the names of certain witnesses who never became public. This case, in the end, as we'll go through, never actually went to trial, so many of the witnesses that we talked to along the way never became public, and their, their identities were never publicly known. So I changed the names of any witnesses that were not, uh, that weren't made public during the course of the case. So Terrence Ford was identified. He lived in, in a Dallas suburb. Now, another thing for, for listeners not necessarily familiar with, with Texas again. So Tenehall, you have to understand, was in the eastern part, deep eastern part of the state, almost in Louisiana, very close to Louisiana, probably about three hours, three and a half hours from Dallas. And so um, I was very curious as to how someone in the Dallas area would know anything about anybody over in Tenaha. So I got phone records for Ford, Terrence Ford, and that's when the case really took an interesting turn because I found thousands of phone calls between Terrence Ford and Rod McClure. Rod McClure, as you recall, was another person who got the letter, this this Jack Frost extortion letter. There were also a lesser number of calls, but still a good number, between Terrence Ford and Fred Walker, the city marshal. So it was very curious that it seemed that the extortioner personally knew uh, both McClure and Walker, so it certainly had a curious uh, turn to it and made me start thinking that well, I don't know what this is. Is I don't know. Maybe Fred and uh, Fred Walker and Rod McClure. Maybe they're not victims. I, I don't know what I'm looking at here. So let me back up uh, for, for just a quick moment, and that is to say that uh, during the civil rights investigation, there were two burglaries that occurred in the city of Kenneah. One was at the city marshal's office, and one was at the county constable's office. Two, the, in this small town, there were two law enforcement offices, so the, the, the county office and then the city office. Both offices were burglarized, which is very unusual that you would have a law enforcement office burglarized. But uh, because at the time we were on the civil rights investigation, it wasn't a matter that had FBI jurisdiction. I didn't uh, didn't look into those, so it was just a curious thing. But then you have this letter from Jack Frost saying that, that evidence is being stolen out of the city marshal's office. And it occurred to me that the, of these burglaries and I, again, it made me start thinking, I mean that I'm not sure this is is exactly what it appears to be. So uh, I had uh, another discussion or a subsequent discussion with a new city marshal who had replaced Fred Walker. And when this new city marshal had come in, he had noticed that Fred Walker spent a lot of time with Rod McClure, and actually it turned out that Rod McClure was a little bit more than just the local computer guy. Apparently McClure had a long criminal history, and at, at that time, uh, according to the city marshal, was, was reputed to be a, a drug dealer in town, and I thought, well, it sure is curious that that Fred Walker is spending so much time with, with McClure and if he's reputed to be a drug dealer and uh, that, it also kind of makes sense now that maybe why McClure would be getting an extortion letter about drug dealing. So um, that really kind of um, uh kind of turned the case around and made me start thinking this may not be exactly what I, what it appears to be. So after a, some more uh, investigation to uh, look at bank records, look at uh, to confirm to up that, that actually Terrence Ford was the person that sent this extortion letter. We confronted him, uh, in an interview, um, at his home, uh, in the Dallas suburbs. And he initially said, he admitted that he had sent the letters, the, the Jack Frost extortion letters. But he said, well, you know, uh, Fred Walker and Rod McClure, uh, our, our friends of mine, Uh McClure and I go way back. I've known him, known him a long time, and this was just a practical joke. Um, it, was, <laughs> it was a practical joke, and he said I didn't tell Rod about it because when when Rod got the letter, he was scared and uh, and and actually told me that that the letters had been forwarded to the FBI, and 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 Ford said it, it scared me. So I, he said, I didn't say anything. I didn't. Uh, I didn't want to you know I didn't want him to know that I'd done it because he was he was going to be really mad but based on what I knew at this point it didn't fit it was too elaborate uh for a joke um uh it it just it, the cost of of setting up this this uh post office box he had used a uh, an unrelated a person unrelated to this case to actually set up the um the the mailbox and had actually, uh, falsified some identification documents, um, for her to use to open up this account, uh, this mailbox account. So it was far too elaborate, uh, that it was, that it, to make sense as it, that it was a joke. And so. Did,
1: did, I, did I miss something? How did, were you able to determine that Terrence Ford was the person who wrote the letter? Was that through the emails also?
2: Through the email, yes. And through, well, okay, so. When he – okay, when his friend, the the unrelated female, when she opened up the uh, post office box, okay, she had to provide uh, some identification. She provided her driver's license, and she provided two insurance cards for uh, automobile liability insurance cards. And those cards had her name on it, okay, but the VIN numbers for the cars that were supposedly insured came back to Terrence Ford.
1: Okay.
2: So – uh, that's, that's, that's how I initially got Ford's name. And then when I got the uh, records for the email address, it came back to his, his address. Okay. Okay. So at this point, I didn't know if the female was in on it or not, but I know that through the course of the case that she, she really wasn't, that, that she actually had just basically been used by Ford, uh, and didn't really know what she was a part of. Anyway, so we, uh, confronted, uh, Ford. He says it's a joke, but there were some several things that were inconsistent with, uh, with his story. And this is uh, where many times in the FBI, people think that we know more than we do actually. Um, and I certainly at this point didn't mind using that, uh, that myth to my advantage because he, in the course of this interview, Ford would, had told me a couple of things, um, uh, related to some, uh, phone calls. That I knew were inconsistent um, in my review of his records, and I stopped him and I said, "Okay, first off, I, I I don't believe that this was a joke. It was far too elaborate for you to do this." And I said, there's, "You're not telling me the truth. You're not telling you're, you're. There's something you're not telling me, and you know it." And what I meant was this discrepancy in the phone records that 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 we were talking about at the moment, and. Uh, that's what i meant when i said you're not telling me everything and he said well you're right I- i'm not telling you everything it wasn't a joke um it wasn't <laughs> done as a joke it was a real extortion and if i tell you any more i'm going to i'm going to get myself in trouble but i know a lot of i know a lot about some corruption there and so i we got him what's called a proper which is, uh, for, for listeners unfamiliar with that, it's, a, it's, a, uh, uh, it's called a queen-for-a-day session uh, in, in the FBI, and that is someone is given a proffer letter which allows them to uh, provide information uh, that cannot be used against them. As long as that information is truthful, what they acknowledge or admit to cannot be used against them. It's not necessarily immunity but it, uh, it, it just, it, it, allows them to not have that used against them. So we did a proffer session with, with Terrence Ford and he laid out a whole story that the, he had known McClure going back many years. Uh, they had actually been DEA informants together, uh, back in the early nineties. And over, they had maintained contact over the years and he went to visit McClure over in Pinhoa from time to time. And he said that beginning in uh, 2009, McClure had, had started uh, stealing narcotics out of both the constable's office and out of the city marshal's office, all with the help and assistance of the city marshal, Fred Walker. Wow. And that they had been selling these drugs now for, uh, the, they, for several months and supposedly were making a lot of money. Now, Terrence Ford was an interesting guy. He, um he saw himself as a Hollywood screenwriter and believed he was going to have a career as a screenwriter and had actually gone out to LA to, uh, to pursue that, but that had not really worked out for him. So he was not doing that great financially, and he kept getting text messages and phone calls from McClure saying how much money he and Walker were making selling these stolen drugs, and it was just easy street. But McClure was wanting to expand uh, and have uh, uh, Ford sell these stolen drugs in the Dallas area and expand their market. Ford resisted that at first. But because his screenwriting efforts had, had not worked out for him, he eventually decided that he would do that.
1: Well, right. ended- a, a guy a guy has to have a, a backup plan.
2: <laughs> exactly. You have to have a plan B in life. <laughs> so he he did, he got some marijuana and he got some pills from McClure and he turns out that Ford was actually probably a worse drug dealer than he was a screenwriter. Because on the two occasions that he tried to sell this stolen marijuana, uh, he got ripped off himself and, uh, by the, by the people he was trying to sell to. So he was frustrated, um, at this point and he kept getting text messages, uh, or pictures from McClure that showed cash and hundreds of dollars being made and McClure was bragging about it. So Ford decided that, well, they're making so much cash. Uh, they, it won't hurt them to give up a little bit of it and he came up with the extortion plan. And one thing that you had mentioned a second ago about that, that Walker had sent the letter to me and was genuinely scared, as it turns out, he was. Uh, they, when he and McClure got these letters, they did believe that, that this was a real extortion. But why they sent it to the FBI knowing that that, that it, it was true. The, that it, yes, that it can't contain these these allegations about this the, the drug trafficking. Uh, I'll I'll get to that later, and that's going to be the, the the compelling part. Okay, so um, over the course of a of a long career in the FBI, I have have interviewed a lot of people, and one thing that I learned over time was most people uh, that are kind of in trouble or on the edge of the law very rarely tell you the truth. So, um, uh, or there's always shades of the truth. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I always want is independent corroboration. So I, I'll, you know, I'll listen to someone, I'll let them tell me what they know, but I'm also at the same time thinking, how can I prove what they're telling me independently? So at the, at the end of this tale, uh, of Ford, uh, he, I said, I asked him, I said, well, that's a very compelling story and some really, uh, blockbuster allegations here but why how can I how can I prove that uh, independently and he said I've known Rod McClure a long time uh, he's uh, over the years we've had our ups and downs and he said one of the things I've learned to do is I need to protect myself in any dealings with Rod McClure um, and he pulled out his phone and he showed a, a series of photographs of what appeared to be Marijuana, large amounts of marijuana, pills, uh, and even something that was, the picture described, it, w- it was a white powder described as nine kilos of cocaine. The, the pictures of the marijuana were taken inside McClure's garage. And so it was, it was pretty compelling evidence,
0: <laughs> in, in, including
2: that not only did the, were there pictures, but also McClure had provided captions with the pictures as to what you were seeing. So in other words, it was uh, uh, the amounts of of hydrocodone pills, the amounts of Xanax pills, the amounts of marijuana, and so forth. So he had laid it all out right there. Now, to to backtrack just a little bit about the, the burglary that had occurred. Now, in the city marshal's office, a burglary had occurred in in August of 2010 and the entire evidence room had been ransacked and all narcotics evidence was missing. So one of the things that Ford had revealed was that uh McClure and Walker had gotten nervous that someone was going to inventory the evidence room at some point and find out that the, that they had been that this all the evidence was missing because they had steadily been taking it out over time. And what would be the explanation be? So they decided to stage a burglary to cover up this this theft of the, the drugs that had been ongoing. And so McClure and Walker uh, staged this burglary, and that's how they covered it up. And what they left behind were empty boxes where the narcotics had actually been stored. So going back to Barry Washington from the civil rights case a moment, In addition to the, the seizures that he had made of, of money, people carrying large amounts of cash, he had also made large amounts of drug seizures. Okay. And all that went into the city marshal's office after it had been sent to the, the Texas DPS laboratory, crime laboratory. It was analyzed, weighed and packaged, sealed with a a, a unique sticker describing the amount uh, and type of narcotics evidence that was, those boxes were left behind. So that gave us some indication of what exactly was missing. And so, so we knew we were dealing with a large amount of narcotics.
1: Oh, that's great. Yeah. You know, there's no guessing, you know, you you have a basic inventory of uh, what was stolen. That's exactly right. So at this point, it's,
2: it's pretty clear cut that we have uh, McClure involved in this. One of the top priorities of the FBI is public corruption. It is the top criminal uh, priority uh, in the, in the FBI and probably I think overall the third priority behind maybe terrorism uh, and cybercrime. I may have those wrong, but, but nonetheless, public corruption is a top priority in the, in the FBI. And so clearly, it's it's nice that we have all this evidence against McClure, but we re- we really wanted uh, the, the the city marshal here, who's allowing this to happen. So we confronted McClure, and he essentially uh, denied uh, anything, but said he had been directed by Fred Walker to install illegal uh, wiretapping equipment in Barry Washington's office and in the mayor's office in City Hall. Um, he had installed uh, hidden audio recorders and he had installed a uh, video of uh, hidden video cameras that were disguised as smoke detectors. And it was what <laughs> it was never, uh, uh, never actually determined. But my reasoned opinion is, is that this was something that uh, Barry Washington was a thorn in in the side of Fred Walker and Rod McClure. And that the wiretapping was an attempt to uh gather some kind of dirt on Washington to compromise him and get him out of there. But um, anyway, so McClure I- I admitted to to involvement in this this illegal wiretapping, and he said that it had been done on the orders of Fred Walker. So, um, and then he admitted that he also had some of the recordings in his house. Well, at the time, we didn't take those recordings, but we uh, went and got a search warrant for McClure's house uh, a few days later. And when we executed the search warrant, we also found 13 guns. Now, part of McClure's criminal history included um, a, a firearms violation, or I'm sorry, a sexual assault violation that had a felony conviction with it. So he was a felon in possession of firearms. And so he was arrested, McClure was arrested that day at his house. In the federal system, a person after they are arrested would have an, a, what's called an initial appearance for a, a U.S. magistrate. So on the on the way, I have to understand, too, uh, some more Texas geography. So McClure lived in Tenaha. The nearest jail that would accept federal prisoners was in Lufkin, Texas. But the nearest magistrate uh, for an initial appearance would have, was down in Beaumont, Texas, which is down near Houston so uh after a night in the jail in Lufkin, McClure was transported to um uh Beaumont for uh his initial appearance before a magistrate a federal magistrate during the course of this car ride, which was probably right at two hours or so. McClure initiated and gave a full confession about his involvement with Walker and with uh this 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 ongoing theft of the narcotics. That they had staged the burglary. Um, oh, another interesting thing too, at the burglary that was staged, a, a letter was found that was written in Spanish, um, roughly translated. It said, uh, we are the, uh, Los Zetas, uh, cartel. We are, uh, we are coming to Tinahaw to kill all the law enforcement officers there. It was really very, uh, uh, not well done. Okay, and it was unbelievable.
1: <laughs> a little yeah. over the top.
2: Yes, it was one of those things that just was that that uh, at the time of that burglary, the Texas Rangers investigated it and they they thought it was a staged burglary. They thought something was fishy, but but actually at the time couldn't prove it. So McClure admits to uh, having a, a, a girlfriend write the letter, uh, the the Spanish letter for him. Um, and it was done to basic, basically make it look like that this, the, the Los, the Los Cetas had, um had, had done this burglary. And so part of what they uh, reasoned was, uh, if we want to make this thing look real, you're not going to have a, you know, a Mexican cartel break into an evidence room and just take the dope. There's also guns in here. It wouldn't be believable that they would, they would, they would, uh, uh, leave the guns. So, um, they took the guns and they threw them in a local creek. And so McClure is telling all this in his, in his admission in the car. So the the, the guns were subsequently recovered, uh, which gave credence to his story. So when, when McClure appeared before the magistrate uh, in the federal system during initial appearance, one is either detained pending trial or the judge lets them go on their own recognizance. McClure was detained. The judge made the decision to detain McClure, and at that point, he really never cooperated again. Case, uh, which w- was quite curious, and I the the, the is really the 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 mystery of the book that uh, how I end the book. But
1: well, let me ask so, you this question: sure. mm-hmm. When he did talk to you during that two-hour car ride mm-hmm. to Beaumont? Uh, was it because he was thinking he was going to make some type of deal so he would not have to be uh, uh, in- taken into custody? I absolutely
2: believe that is that is exactly what he was thinking. I don't think he counted on that he was going to be detained. And uh, I think you're absolutely correct. I think he felt like uh, that maybe he, he could get released and that he would be able to control and uh, do things from there. And so, when he was detained, it, it put a big crimp in his ability to control uh, the situation. So uh, from that moment on, he really never cooperated and, in fact, went through a series of attorneys that he hired and fired. He filed numerous motions for various hearings. He fought tooth and nail for um, uh, on every aspect of this case. And uh, he lost at every turn, but nonetheless, it really it really dragged the case out. Um, and ultimately, our our whole goal was to get Fred Walker. So let me backtrack on that a second. So Terrence Ford had the text messages from McClure. Uh, we had uh, we could place that these photographs of these of uh, the drugs were in McClure's house. Uh, we had the girlfriend who admitted that she had written a letter for him to stage this burglary. We had numerous, uh, uh, pieces of direct evidence against McClure. But in the course of it, we didn't have anything on Fred Walker. Ford had never had any direct conversations with, with Walker about, uh, this scheme. He only knew what he knew through McClure. So we it, so we couldn't use him; that would have been hearsay, um, and there was no other direct evidence. But Walker hadn't sent any text messages, uh, you know, that incriminated himself. And, and so we we actually needed McClure; we needed his testimony that Walker was part of it. We needed we needed McClure, but he again he was not cooperating. He was fighting this case as hard as he could. Now. We also knew that he had been a DEA informant. He had admitted that to us. Um, checked with uh, some of his former DEA handlers. They all remembered him. Uh, and they were all, uh, of the same agreement that he was, he was an eager informant. He would inform on anybody. And so it didn't make sense as to why he would not, uh, cooperate uh, against, against Walker because he would have had uh, it would have greatly helped his situation because he was facing about 25 years uh, yeah. on the on the narcotics charges that were hanging over him. But but he never did. So through the course of all these hearings and motions and uh, yeah, motions to dismiss and evidentiary suppression hearings, uh, McClure ultimately came down to we're going to be going to trial. Okay, so we were we were preparing and getting ready for trial when McClure said that, or through his attorney, wanted to have a proffer session. He wanted to provide us information. So we were thinking, well, maybe this is it. Maybe this is finally going to be it. He's going to finally give us what we need against Fred, and certainly we're going to need some corroboration, but maybe this is what we needed. Well, that was was not what occurred at all, because in the proffer session, All McClure did was essentially go down our witness list and provide dirt. He provided dirt or said some inflammatory statements about almost all of our witnesses that would uh, (laughs) impinge on their credibility and that he knew, but uh, provided absolutely nothing about uh, Fred Walker. So it's very self-serving proffer. Oh, big time. Okay. But during the course of this proffer, he provided two pieces of information that were that were really uh, very important uh, and explained a lot to me. One was he admitted that he was the source of the CNN report that initially started the national media sensation in the city of Tenaha that the motorist uh, that began the civil rights case. And uh, that, that he felt that Barry Washington had been violating folks' civil rights and that he felt as a as a good citizen that that, that was his duty to report that. And I, although that's what he said, I really didn't believe that. I really believe it was the same pattern. It was just something he had done to try to get rid of Barry Washington. Because you have to understand, as this civil rights case was going on, as Barry Washington uh, was doing these narcotics stops, these interdiction stops, uh Rod McClure and Fred Walker were selling the, the seized drugs as almost as quickly as as Barry Washington brought it in. Wow. So, um but but nonetheless, even though Barry was bringing in a lot of uh stuff, he also was they had to work around him. They so he was he was kind of a thorn in their side. So I believe that the C, the, the contacting CNN was his attempt to just put pressure on Barry so that Barry would resign and leave. Well, that
1: must have given you some type of relief in your investigative skills because I'm sure you were still questioning how these allegations came in about these uh you know civil rights uh, illegal car stops that you weren't able to find any evidence, and the reason was because it was all a bogus charge a bogus allegation
2: absolutely and and it it really was a great relief and it actually ended up it made a lot of sense and so the other thing that McClure offers in this proffer was that he wanted to clear the air about something. He wanted it known that he was not a murderer and that uh, he, quote, didn't do murder because that could put a needle in your arm. And what he was referring to were rumors that we had heard during the course of this uh, investigation but we had not really looked into that a person named David Thompson uh, who had died of an apparent... Suicide had actually been murdered and Rod wanted it known on the record that he didn't do it. But he was happy to offer who he thought did it, and so and it was one of our witnesses that we were going to use against him in the narcotics case. So at this point, uh, we had a new issue to kind of deal with. Uh, we have a yeah, guy you can't making, ignore
1: that. Yeah, you can't ignore, ignore that. that. We have a guy
2: yeah. making an allegation that one of our witnesses possibly murdered a guy. So a little background on David Thompson. David Thompson was a friend of Rod McClure's. They had worked together at this small Tenehaw City Water Department, and it was reputed that David Thompson was a drug dealer. In fact, McClure told us that Thompson had taught him, taught McClure, how to cook methamphetamine, had shown him how to convert a semi-automatic rifle into a uh, fully automatic and had passed along several other skills. But one of the other skills that apparently David Thompson had was uh, downloading child pornography. And the Secret Service, actually, unrelated to the civil rights case, unrelated to our uh, narcotics investigation, had actually, uh, David Thompson had become a suspect of theirs in uh, a child pornography case. And they had uh, – the Secret Service ended up doing a search warrant at David Thompson's house on a Thursday afternoon. Thompson admitted to having the child pornography. His computers were seized, which all had been set up by Rod McClure, by the way, and were in McClure's name. Um, and uh, that was on a Thursday. Thompson, who was actually homebound at this time and visited by uh, uh home health care nurses, uh, was found dead – the next Monday, of a gunshot wound to the head. Now, the only person to investigate, officially investigate this matter, was Fred Walker. There were no crime scene photos available. There was a, I think maybe a three-paragraph report uh, on this uh, on this apparent suicide. Um, most of it was uh, spent describing what, walk, what actions Walker took To ensure that there was no civil liability on him for uh, having to break into the house when the home health care nurse had knocked and there was no answer. Another interesting thing was is that Walker, uh, before he entered the house, insisted that a home health care nurse go in with him at the same time. And when they went in, they found uh, they found David Thompson on a bed. Uh, Clearly, uh, he was deceased. And that's pretty much it. That's how the case. Uh, ended, uh, or that the, uh, the investigation of David Thompson. So we set about with the interviewing the contacting and interviewing the home health care folks that were, were present during that. And one of the curious things was Thompson was found on a bed that was, uh, the head of the bed was in a corner of the room. Okay. It was all up flush against the corner of the, of the room. He was laying on the uh, it would be on the right edge of the bed on his back with his left arm dangling off the bed. And the gun apparently, well, it wasn't apparent. I mean, it was the gun was under the bed, uh slightly under the bed near his left hand, which was dangling off the bed. However, the gunshot was in his right temple. It would be very, very difficult for him to shoot himself with his left hand. The guy was five foot seven and he weighed about two seventy five. So I don't think mm. I don't think he had much flexibility. And uh it was just a very uh strange uh arrangement for how it would be uh you would think that he would be found. Because I'm like is- go ahead.
1: I was gonna say and this is from the home health care nurse because you had no crime scene photos.
2: That's correct. So it was a home health care, two home, uh, a home health care nurse, a person from the funeral home, and, uh, the, uh, the, 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 uh, uh, county judge, uh, I'm sorry, justice of the peace, uh, who all described Thompson being on his back, left arm dangling, gun under the bed, and gunshot wound to the right side of the head. So what I surmised we were dealing with was a staged crime scene. Uh, whereas where we've seen one before at the city marshal's office before David Thompson, we presume, would have known all about uh, McClure's narcotics trafficking and so forth. So there never was enough evidence that McClure or Walker actually killed him, but it was suspicious and remains unsolved um, to, to this day. So. That's so
1: McClure was trying to tell you that one of your witnesses did it.
2: That's correct. Uh, and, and McClure said that once the Secret Service had shown up, that, uh, that they had taken his computers, that the other witness was scared to death that, uh, that Thompson was going to cooperate with the C- Secret Service, uh, and tell what he knew about all the drug trafficking in town. Uh, McClure said he was not concerned that Thompson would tell on him but he said our witness was uh now Thompson never did cooperate he didn't provide anything at all but they whoever if he was killed uh he someone was scared that he was going to i believe so that the case ultimately kind of ends uh anticlimactically because Fred Walker was never charged in the narcotics trafficking because McClure never cooperated against him and actually remains a free man.
1: Are um, you serious? The, the, the,
2: the U.S. Attorney's Office made the decision that they were, all we had was circumstantial evidence against Walker and uh, that the, it was a roll of the dice if we went to trial to try to convict him. And they made the decision to just leave him as an unindicted co-conspirator.
1: And so what happened with Rod McClure? Did he go to trial or did he uh,
2: McClure, McClure ended up pleading guilty and he I he think that doesn't make action. any
1: sense to me. So if you're I, going to plea anyway, why wouldn't you cooperate and provide information to your co conspirator? Part of what we learned along
2: the way through the jail recordings was that McClure uh claimed to that he had been promised uh, at least forty thousand dollars to keep his mouth shut. And uh, I guess he, he reasoned that doing 56 months in jail was worth $40,000. Um, I, I don't really know uh, what the thought process was, but uh, it, it it just is kind of left as a mystery.
1: Amazing. Just, <laughs> I, I had no idea that that is how this was going to end. So and how so did that- you... Yeah, how did you feel about that? That uh, well, one
2: of the one of the questions that 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 you know you, you might think about, and you had brought it up earlier, is why in the world did McClu why did Walker, knowing that 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 the Jack Frost letter described the, their narcotic scheme, why did he send that? And I I honestly don't have an answer for you other than my own my own opinion, my own speculation, and you have to understand that when they staged the burglary of the marshal's office to cover up the theft of the drugs there there had been uh, really if that had remained unsolved. And I think they arrogantly believed that they had done such a great job of, uh, of staging the burglary that just, you know, uh, no one's going, nothing's going to come back on them. So what do they have to worry about? And so, uh, uh, they so that's why the letter was sent.
1: Wow. That is absolutely <laughs> amazing. You know, talking about a, a surprise ending. <laughs>
2: exactly. <laughs> so in in a way there's some irony in the case in that, you know, McClure uh had uh had brought in uh the the national media to try to hound, I think, Barry Washington out of town and uh that really resulted in the FBI, the DOJ, the Texas Rangers, and the ATF ultimately all getting involved in this case, uh, which actually kind of ended up kind of coming back on him uh, and exposing what was really going on. And so uh, it's, just, it's funny how things work sometimes.
1: Well, let me ask you one follow-up question that sure. I had, and that was the fact that you were saying that they, they made all of these stops that they were able to compensate all these drugs and, and money, and they were all in the storeroom there at the city marshal's uh, uh, evidence room, but that the local prosecutor, the local district attorney, never attempted to actually charge or prosecute any of these people driving through town. Why was that? Was it just because it was just there for a money-making revenue uh, source, and they really didn't care about the... Illegal activity.
2: I never knew the real reason as to why folks those car stops were not followed up with prosecutions. I really don't know because it really gave just just an awful appearance to what was going on. Um, I don't know if it just was something that that maybe it's a small office, a small county, and maybe they were just overwhelmed and and just you know were not able to get to them in a timely manner. I I really don't know. Uh, Maybe it was incompetence. Um, I don't know. I really don't have an answer for you there, but it, it certainly, I think, would have shortcutted or short circuited a lot of the, the allegations that, uh, you know, that they were, that anything wrong was happening.
1: Well, we've talked now for an hour and you've told us some absolutely fascinating stories and twists and turns, but I would imagine that in your book, and again, it's called TenaHa: Corruption and Cover Up in a Small Town in Texas. I would imagine that there is so much more to the story that we didn't get a chance to talk about.
2: There is. I I go into great detail about the crime scene where where David Thompson was, and there's a lot lot more to it uh, in between. You're, You're exactly right.
1: All right. Well, I will make sure that I put a link to your book in this episode's show notes, and I will also include it in my FBI reading resource, which is a a list I keep of all of the crime fiction, true crime, and memoirs written by the very agents that I've interviewed on this podcast. And I encourage, you know, everyone listening that if you want to learn more about this case, that they need to go and and, and pick up a copy of Tinahaw Corruption, and Cover-Up in Small Town, Texas. So, could you tell us a little bit about... About you, Stuart. I mean, this. Where were you assigned when you were in the FBI? Okay. You know, when did you join the FBI? Why did you join the FBI? Sure.
2: Okay. I actually, and I go into this as well in the book a little bit. My my grandfather had been an, uh, an FBI special agent from 1941 to
1: 1962.
2: Wow. And he he actually, I, I have a vague memory of him. He died really before I really ever ever got to know him that well. So I, I really never got any. First-hand stories of the FBI from him, but I, I I just kind of knew in the back of my mind that he had been an FBI agent, and I always thought that was kind of a, a kind of a really cool thing. And um, I, I really didn't set out to be an FBI agent, but I I pursued a degree in accounting. I got a degree in accounting, and then I learned that the, that the FBI hired uh, lawyers and accountants. That was primarily who they looked for in those days. So in 1987, I joined the FBI. Uh, I started out as a, actually as a support employee, uh, and then uh, shortly after that, I became an agent, and uh, I was assigned to the Little Rock uh, office as my first office. From there, I went to Chicago. And then in 1997, I got transferred to the Tyler Resident Agency, uh, which is a small satellite office out of the Dallas office, the Dallas Steel Division. And at, when I got to Tyler, I primarily worked public corruption matters. That was what I, I mainly worked, which ended up being, uh, sadly, mainly law, enforce, law enforcement corruption in the form of officers protecting drug dealers. So um, I had seen quite a few of those cases, and but when when this Tenaha case happened, it, it had a lot of different uh, aspects that I had not seen uh, prior. Yeah, it
1: really had it had like uh so many different violations. <laughs> so, what are you doing now? Well, I,
2: I retired uh in December of uh, 2016, last December. Um and I had I've uh, got all my uh licenses and certifications uh as a private investigator in Texas. But since that time, I've actually um had to spend uh practically my full-time efforts now are being a caretaker for an aunt of mine who's I'm her only living relative and I will I will say this that any of the most dangerous the most complicated case that I would have worked in the FBI was a cakewalk comparing to dealing with elder care issues so I'm I'm on I'm on new uncharted waters in that regard But uh, she is, uh, my aunt is steadily improving, and hopefully I will soon be able to get back and start doing some private investigation work.
1: Wow, what a great nephew you are. That's wonderful. Thank you. All right. All right, so I always like to give my guest the last word. So you can sum up this case or talk about your career. What would you like to say? Well, as far as this case, it's, it's something that, at least the book.
2: I, I never really set out to be a, a writer. I, I actually enjoy writing. I, I enjoy the process, and and I'll have to say it actually comes fairly uh, easy to me. Um, but I, that was really not why I wrote the book. I um, as I began to uh, to close out the case, one of the things that we typically do is is just a, a summary uh, of the case to to close it out. And as I started writing this closing summary, uh, it occurred to me, I was reminded that, uh, over the course of this investigation, several times people had told me this, this, this case is so unique. There's so many little twists in it that it really deserves someone should write a book about this because no one would really believe all this. And as I started writing that closing summary, I, that's what occurred to me that, that, well, maybe, maybe there is a book in this and maybe, maybe someone should hear about this. And so that was, that's how that got started. And, um, I actually have a, a second, uh, book that I'm, uh, that I'm writing now, uh, that, uh, kind of set me on a a new career path that I really didn't see coming. So, um, I'm enjoying it so far and, and it's, it's, it's really been fun.
0: And that's the end of the interview. As always, back at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Stuart Fillmore, you'll find links to newspaper articles about the case, and you'll find a link to his book, Tinahaw Corruption and Cover-Up in Small Town, Texas. I hope you enjoyed the interview and that you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. If you're listening to this on a podcast app, of course, you can share it directly from your device. And if you're listening to it from my website, look at the bottom of the show notes, the social media buttons are back. All right, so my crime fiction recommendation is And When She Was Good, a novel by Laura Lippman. The novel is about Heloise, a woman with a secret life who, with no formal education, no real family or friends, has been able to support herself and her son as a suburban madam. When she learns that her son's father, a killer, and her former pimp might be released from jail, she's desperate to disappear and remake her life again. Now, I have to confess that I listened to this as an audio book. And I really enjoyed the novel, but I wonder if I would have enjoyed it as much if I had read it instead of listened to it because there is a lot of prose and not a lot of action and dialogue, but I really love the introspective viewpoints from the different characters. So yes, I recommend And When She Was Good by Laura Lipman. And while you're over at Amazon.com taking a look at When She Was Good, I hope you also check out my FBI crime thriller, Pay to Play, about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry. The book is available as an ebook, trade paperback, and audiobook. And I want to remind you, I still have a few promo codes which are good for a free copy of the pay-to-play audiobook. They're first come first serve. So if you're thinking that this sounds like a book that you might like, then just email me, let me know, and I'll send you out that promo code so you can get a free copy of pay-to-play. All I would ask is if you do enjoy listening to the crime thriller, that you leave a review at audible.com. This episode was sponsored by FBIretired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.